Hey everyone. If you're tired of a normal, happy ending, try this short story collection. It's way less happy, but it has way more endings. Today's book is called Get in Trouble by Kelly Link. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I recommended this book today for our podcast when I hadn't read it myself for 10 years, and then I reread it last week and realized I only like two of the stories. (laughs) That's funny, because I liked most of them. (laughs) This is when you introduce a friend to someone you kind of like, and then they get married. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. Get in trouble is what I mutter to myself when I use incognito mode to read an extra Wired article. Get in trouble is a short story collection full of magical realism, which basically means anytime you're having fun with the magic, in comes the realism to make it less fun. And this is The Book Pile. A listener who calls himself Unique Name Goes Here said, Very entertaining podcast that has led me to read a few good books and helped me rationalize not reading many more. The JFK jokes will never get old, just like JFK. (laughs) (laughs) I love a solid review with a solid joke. Yeah, that's great. All right, a big announcement. We're going to be having our next live podcast in Provo, Utah, Saturday, June 4th at a venue called The Hive Collaborative. It's a beautiful little theater there in Provo. Go to thehivecollaborative.com for tickets. We're also looking to do shows this year in Los Angeles and possibly Seattle. If you want us to come to your town, let us know by emailing us at thebookpilepodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise... Buy your plane tickets for Provo, Utah, June 4th. We're going to hit record this time. (laughs) Well, no, we hit record. We're going to hit save this time. (laughs) And we will be roasting the Twilight Saga colon eclipse. If you want to see me live, I'll be at the Pittsburgh Improv, May 27th through the 29th, and then at Bananas Comedy Club, a real place, in Rutherford, New Jersey, (laughs) June 24th through 25th. Go to KellenErskin.com for tickets. I wonder how many of these venues hear you make fun of their names before you go there. (laughs) Well, that's their fault. (laughs) Finally, our next two books are The Singularity is Near and The Illustrated Man. And just so you listeners know, this moment is usually when I realize, like, oh, I need to read both these books. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from Get in Trouble. All right. Lesson one. A good story is like data compression. I can tell this one's going to be a big hit with our compression fans. (laughs) I'm going to read a few lines from this book, and I want you to pay attention to how much life is packed in these short lines. Every time I hurt her, though, the next time I see her, I'm nice again, and I apologize, and I get her back. Mostly I'm nice just to see if she's going to fall for it this time, too. (laughs) We all know that guy, or are that guy, or wish we were hot enough to be that guy. (laughs) Becoming famous, this kind of fame, it's luck indistinguishable from catastrophe. It's so rich, because every famous person has that moment of, you know, Hey, your dreams all came true. Now you can never go to the mall. (laughs) Obama would apparently have this recurring dream where he's just by himself in a city and no one needs anything from him. (laughs) It's one of those things that everyone thinks that they want, even though everyone who has it tells them that they don't want it. (laughs) 
It's got to be such a win-lose situation, too, right? Where you're in the famous movie, then you go to the promenade, you walk in the middle, people start flocking toward you, and you're like, yes, now I can be unhappy. (laughs) Now almost no one will believe I'm still unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, 100%. Now no one wants to hear me talk about my depression. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are dismissive of the troubles of famous people because we're like, why would it be a bad thing that millions of people have an opinion about your weight? (laughs) (laughs) All right, next line from the book. They weren't a lucky family. They had money instead of luck. I won't say what family that applies to, but it starts with John F. (laughs) Also, if you want to read something morbid or as Kellen would call it, hilarious, go to the Wikipedia page. Kennedy curse. Oh, no. It is so long. (laughs) Next line. Everybody naked, nobody happy. (laughs) Relatable. Next. (laughs) No presents, Ainsley said. No one ever means it when they say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Last one. A sense of humor is a weakness. I know you're supposed to be able to laugh at yourself, but that's pretty sucky advice when everyone is always laughing at you already. (laughs) (laughs) All right, after those quotes, now we get to the good part, data compression. (laughs) I'm going to give a basic definition, and I say basic to give the impression that I know anything more than this. (laughs) So compression is basically, you know, how do you cram as much information into a file as possible? So a brilliant class taught me, if you have a photo that has like 50 red pixels in a row, instead of storing red 50 times, you just store an instruction that says, you know, make the next 50 pixels red. Um, And that was their actual quote. So, like, what is this horrifying photo? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I've been thinking lately that good art is the same way where it crams as much life as possible into a tiny packet of art. You know, all this psychology and ideas and people and humor and lessons. Uh, Like, the movie Little Women is someone saying, can we make people feel every emotion in two hours? (laughs) (laughs) All right, lesson two. Would you rather your reputation be perfect or true? (laughs) There's a story in this book where rich people, when they have a child, they hire an actor to play that child in public, sort of what the royal family wishes they'd done. And basically, the actor is better looking than you. They're better behaved than you. They get paid to live a perfect public life so that you can make dumb mistakes and still have a great reputation. (laughs) And I bring it up, one, because it's interesting, but two, because... I don't think it's that different from social media. (laughs) Like, I think our Instagrams are about as similar to us as a paid actor would be. (laughs) Because your social media is, it's like you're writing an unrealistic character. You're like, okay, so he's funny and and good looking and a great dad. So happy. (laughs) He voted, but he's only telling people so they'll vote. Like, even even when we're vulnerable on social media, we're just trying to score a different kind of points. (laughs) Plus, when we do get vulnerable, it's always, I have bags under my eyes. It's never like, I think I don't love my youngest. (laughs) (laughs) One fake thing that I'm tired of in social media is when someone captions a picture with, just live your best life. Because, like, just think of all the pictures you've seen that under, and it's usually could have just been captioned with, I'm rich and here's a picture of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Here's me on vacation. That's all it is. Stop pretending like like you're motivating anyone, right? Like that's the, <laughs> still one thing that's kept me from scuba diving in Greece is this empty sentence. <laughs> like, oh man, <laughs> I've been living the opposite of this. Thank you. <laughs> you have a eureka moment and rip up your live your mediocre life cross stitch. <laughs> I just I just think if you're living your best life, you wouldn't be screaming for attention on social media. <laughs> so, Kellen, I want to ask, based on this story, would you rather have a totally flawless reputation or a totally true reputation? I think everyone says that they want the true one because it sounds less shallow, but true could also mean incriminating. So, I, I honestly, <laughs> I think that's why the flawless one is so appealing. Right. I think I would pick flawless, not because I think it's a good thing, but because everyone knowing the worst things about me sounds unimaginably bad. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's not always a bad thing. Like, I remember going to a restaurant one time and the server seemed like unusually cheerful and kind. And someone I was with Mm -hmm. was just cynical in general. So a comedian? (laughs) He was like, you know, they just act like that to get tips. And I was like, I think I don't care because I would rather be around a fake nice person than a genuine douchebag. (laughs) By the way, similar to this story, there was this story that came out of Ask a Manager where this company interviewed a guy, they hired him, and then he showed up for work and it was a different guy. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't know how to do the job. He didn't remember people he supposedly met. And everyone was like, that's a different guy, right? (laughs) HR finally called him. And before they could say anything, he just said, I quit. And he hung up and they never saw him again. (laughs) That was more fun than most of the stories in this book. (laughs) It always takes me back a little bit when you hate a book I chose, but it's weirder when you hate a book you chose. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Lesson three, start in medias res, Mm. which is a phrase coined by the Greek poet Horace, which you can now bring up with your friends like I do so that you sound smart. (laughs) When I hear Latin, I just assume someone is casting a spell. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, the fact that there are so many cool sounding spells in Harry Potter And then the most evil death one is almost abracadabra. Like, what is that? (laughs) Do you have a theory behind that? Does J.K. Rowling just flip a coin on when to be whimsical about stuff? (laughs) I think she wanted to name it such that a kid messing around could accidentally kill their dad. (laughs) I wish that there was a moment in Harry Potter where a wizarding family just walks by a family of muggles and one of the Uh kids is harmlessly like, abracadabra, and the parent wizards are just like, hit the deck! (laughs) So in medias res, it just means in the middle of things, meaning that a story doesn't have to start with once upon a time or backstory. You can just jump in. And some people say that Star Wars A New Hope does that with Vader chasing a ship right out of the gate. But those people forget that the story actually started with five floating pages that you have to read. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. Also, I don't think you always have to do this, but it is how Kelly Link treats a lot of her stories. It feels so much more mature in a literary sense than mm -hmm. starting, you know, stories the way that I often do with. The year was 1953. My name is I guess that's what the definition of noir, right? It's when they're just spelling everything out for you. It's 3.30 on a Tuesday. It was raining. Speaking of which, that's something that I forgot to bring up last week in, uh, when we were discussing the big short is that uh, one of those millionaire guys, he grew up in Queens. And he said, when you grow up in Queens, you know where the money is. And it sounds like this big mystery, but in the next sentence, he just says, the money's in Manhattan. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> really could have stretched that out. I would have kept turning pages because I want to find out where money is. But in Get in Trouble, a lot of the stories start out this way. I feel like Christopher Nolan does this a lot, like in Inception. You just start in the middle of one of these dreams, and people are throwing out phrases like, give him the push, you know, stuff that you don't quite know yet, but you'll learn along the way. My favorite example of that is in The Watchmen pilot, when Regina King is driving her car, and baby squids just rain from the sky onto her windshield. <laughs> she gets out, wipes it off, drives away. It does not explain it for several episodes. <laughs> so, for example, in some of these stories, um, a story called Origin Story, it's a conversation between two superheroes, and you just sort of come in mid-conversation. The story, I can see right through you. It's a nonlinear story that starts by definition in the middle and then goes back and forth. Um, and here's one called The New Boyfriend. This is how it starts. Ainsley doesn't rip open presents. She's always been careful with her things, even the things that don't matter. Emmy is a ripper, but this is not Emmy's present, not Emmy's birthday. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Emmy thinks that this may not be Emmy's life. Better luck next time around, Emmy, she tells herself. So you can tell instead of starting with, once there was a girl named Emmy for no reason, because that's not a real name. <laughs> that's another thing about this book is like, does she choose some of these names just to be distracting? <laughs> it's kind of like how the Bible starts with God creating heaven and earth. And it's like, whoa, back up. <laughs> Well, and yeah, and that's the other thing, too, is that's another gimmick that's used in a lot of things is that you'll see it'll start in the middle of things, but then it'll stop two minutes into this crazy entertaining action and it'll be like three days earlier. And then it's just a guy sitting in an office and you're like, no, go back to the fun stuff. <laughs> But these stories, at least, they just she just commits to the middle of things and sometimes it pays off. <laughs> I do feel like there's a lot to be said for just getting to the good stuff quick. I think that's why people hate small talk is that it's just mm. meaningless treading water. Mm -hmm. I think we would be much more engaged in either no conversation or something meaningful, but often no conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, biologically, you can sense it. When someone starts a story with, so last Tuesday, oh wait, was it Wednesday? Within those three seconds, you're immediately like, I don't care, just tell me what happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not a policeman, this isn't an alibi, just tell me. <laughs> it's like that Voltaire quote, the secret to being a bore is to tell everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lesson four. Don't just describe, evoke. 
So I almost called this lesson, you don't ever have to tell us what your characters look like, but you can if you want. Because something that I found while rereading this, she doesn't tell us who anyone looks like ever. Oh. She's more concerned with crafting these stories in a way that you feel the human experience rather than knowing exactly what these humans look like. But we discussed this before, like in On Writing, you really don't have to describe most things. Your brain will fill up the area. Like I can see every character from every one of her stories. I see the character. It's like when you watch a movie that's based on a book and you immediately go, that's not who that person looks like. Uh And the author could have been like, well, it is. (laughs) And we're still like, no, Dumbledore doesn't look like either of these guys. I'd never thought of that before, how probably one of the challenges of adapting a book into a movie is that there are 50 million different book experiences out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's funny, too, because another one that I don't buy, I remember specifically after watching the first Harry Potter movie, and I hadn't read the book yet, but my friend had, and he goes, yeah, Hogwarts Castle was exactly how I pictured it. And I wanted to be like, oh, really? So you could have been the artist for the movie? That's <laughs> that's exactly what you would have designed? Like, where? take your talents to Hollywood. What are you doing here? <laughs> and again, I, I still didn't care for most of these stories, but it wasn't because of bad writing. She's <laughs> She is good at making things feel real. But I just think, isn't reality often boring, too? (laughs) This book, these stories, it's like the opposite of Twilight, which truly is just subpar writing. But I'm still quietly curious where that dumb story is headed. (laughs) Whereas a lot of these stories are just sort of bottle episodes. I feel like half of them are just two people having a conversation for a while, and then it's over. I might not have been bothered by that, because I feel like it just moves so quickly from story to story. Mm. But then I was listening to it at like 3x speed. (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) To me, this is sort of that inside-out way of writing that Alfonso Cuaron used when he wrote the movie Gravity. You know, the one where Sandra Bullock gets flung into space by an exploded shuttle. He said that it started out as his just wanting to write a story about a parent experiencing loss. And then later he decided to put it in space. So it's, I mean, similar to Transformers Dark of the Moon. (laughs) But have you have you not seen Gravity? I mean, like in real life. <laughs> the movie is never as good as the fundamental force. <laughs> but no, you should check it out. It's I don't want to give any of it away. Other than that, it's a hero's journey with a, a woman being the hero, which is something that the <laughs> Greeks weren't really into. Sure. It's technically a science fiction film, but all the cool looking action, it means so much more because it's all informed by this emotional core. Mm-hmm. One of the stories that I liked is called The Lesson. And speaking of data compression, there's this paragraph that that reminded me of, uh, not to put Dave to sleep, but it reminded me of Steinbeck and how he would occasionally write within <laughs> these time lapses, which I know Dave wishes that the entire Grapes of Wrath was a time lapse. <laughs> it felt like it was just that I was inside it. <laughs> So this couple, uh, their baby is born prematurely, and you get some of that information packed into this series of very short sentences. Link writes, They have prepared his room. There has been time after all, a surplus of time, to outfit the room with the usual things. And then these are all just short sentences. A crib, soft animals, a rug, a chair, a light. One day the crib is too small. 
the boy learns to walk. And then again, with all these things, she's not telling you what animals they are or what the rug looks like, but all of us see these things. Mm -hmm. The light is obviously one of those Pixar lights. <laughs> I am picturing a Pixar room. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like pointillism where it's like a detail here or there evokes everything else. She's showing us the very top of an iceberg and we have all these associations with it that compose the whole rest of the iceberg. Right. It's not just describing what something looks like, but hoping that it makes the reader feel the way that you intend them to. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in one of my favorite stories that you didn't like, the first one called The Summer People, but what I enjoyed about it when I was reading it to myself in real time was how <laughs> ominous so much of the book feels. She says, a stone wall tumbled and ruined, and then a big house, dry stacked stones stained with age like the tumble down wall, two stories, a long slant porch, carved wooden shutters making all the eyes of the windows blind, two apple trees crabbed and old, one laden with fruit, the other bare and silver black. Ophelia found the mossy path between them that wound around to the back door with two words carved over the stone lintel, which read, be bold. And so it's this, for me, it was, it's this unsettling image of a rundown house, but also this weird, almost surreal, two identical fruit trees, but one's alive and one's dead, almost as if there's supposed to be some symbolism. And then these mysterious words, to me, it just sort of fed this ominous. And I know that Dave, you listened to all of it in three seconds and you're like, but what is happening? <laughs> But what's in the house? Well, even now, as I listen to it, I'm like, that's great prose. But what I remember after that is 20 minutes of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the, the last evocative uh, example that I have is from my, probably my favorite story in the whole book, Two Houses. And it opens like this. Portia is having a birthday party. Wake up, Gwenda, hurry. Soft music. The smell of warm bread. She could have been back home how many houses ago? In her childhood bed, her mother downstairs baking bread. The last sleep in the spaceship house of secrets opened her eyes, crept from her narrow bed. She rose up or fell into the chamber, narrow and small, a honeycombed cell, soft pink light, invisible drawers, chamber and beds, all of them empty. A citrus smell, lime trees, other smells, pleasant ones that belong to May and Sullivan. And we, f uh, we find out uh, pretty quickly that they're all in this spaceship. But again, something that I love about it is that she never describes what the spaceship looks like. Mm -hmm. But it starts off with what the inside of the spaceship smells like, or that we find that the basically the AI running the ship uh, is having everyone smell to wake up them up from their cryo sleeps. How bad does something have to smell for it to wake you up? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to sell that alarm clock. <laughs> All right, random facts. So this question for Kellen is based on one of the stories. Kellen, if someone offered you a perfect house for free, but a whole family had been murdered there, would you take it? <laughs> I mean, is the suspect still at large? <laughs> I don't know. Could you do it? Well, first I have a follow-up question oh, okay. for you. Mm. What if you weren't allowed to clean up? <laughs> 
that might might be a deal breaker. <laughs> yeah, well, I would, I would just tell my kids, hey, uh, each of you, you get your own rooms. Rule number one, never look down <laughs> or at that one wall. <laughs> and don't open the freezer. <laughs> But this book, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in fiction in uh, wow. 2016. Yeah. But I wanted to discuss real quick, why didn't you? I guess we already did. You just felt like nothing happened in that very first story, The Summer People? Yeah, I felt like it was mostly ambiance and just not a lot of plot that pulled me in. It is funny how we're seeing like opposite on these things because then there are stories like The Summer People, not a lot happens, but there's a lot of creepiness that I got out uh, of it that was enjoyable. But then there are other stories where, yeah, things are happening the whole time and maybe that's why they got your interest. But I didn't care about the things that were happening. <laughs> I mean, I don't care about the drama between a, a, a girl and her robot boyfriend that she's sneaking around with. Like, that's not interesting to me. So, yeah, the, the story about the, the robot boyfriend, it's called The New Boyfriend. And among other things, <laughs> it was hard to listen to it because the, the person reading it on Audible sounds like Moaning Myrtle. <laughs> I genuinely looked up the narrator to see what her deal was. <laughs> <laughs> like, was this a choice? <laughs> well, one one uh, moment that I did enjoy from that story was when uh, when the main character is talking uh, about some of her anxiety. She says, sometimes you have to keep it all inside, like throwing yourself on a bomb to save everyone else, except you're the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> How does that metaphor work? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I just thought about it for a while. <laughs> If a bomb to defend its friends threw itself on itself, it would still kill all of its friends. Unless its friends are bombs. <laughs> so one thing, uh, this is a random fact more about The Wizard of Oz. One of the stories, it, it takes place uh, in this like theme park that you can go to where you walk into Dorothy's house from Oz in one side and it's normal and you walk out the other side and it's as if it's been hit by a tornado. And that's where this these two superheroes uh, just talk the entire time. And there's no, <laughs> the setting has nothing to do with the story and they don't do anything super or heroic. They just talk about old times, the end. But something that one of the characters mentions in there is how Oz wasn't a real wizard. And something that I learned from reading the Oz books that's insane is that Frank Albaum, I'm convinced he did not write that first book um, because it's it's well written and it's just like parable. And then the rest of them are make no sense at all. One of the twists in the book is that the wizard is is actually just a human guy. He's not a wizard. He's been fooling everyone the whole time. Mm -hmm. But then you read the next couple books, and he's like, "Well, I'm magical now because I they they taught me some magic stuff." <laughs> Maybe book one was written by J.J. Abrams, and book two was Ryan Johnson. <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Get in Trouble. One, a good story is like data compression. Two, would you rather your reputation be perfect or true? Three, start in media res. Four, don't just describe, evoke. And five, if you haven't read one of your favorite books for eight years, 
it might not be anymore. <laughs> 